Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. He lives right here in Los Angeles. Please welcome Joshua Wolf Shank. Thanks, Noel. I love the human applause sign. Can I at any point just say, applaud? <laughs> yeah, okay. Um, I'm really happy to be here. It's, this feels like the launch of the book to be in my bookstore, um, Skylight, and um, to see so many friends and loved ones. I'm very grateful to this sweet eight Writers Collective. Is that our formal name? I, that's just a phrase I've been using. Um, if you pay Sweet Aid on PayPal, you, it goes to Hyperion Collective. And I think we're, we're ready to become a marijuana dispensary <laughs> if the whole writing thing doesn't work out for us. But a, a great group of, of folks who um, have made a, um, a community uh, for ourselves. And, and uh, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you all are here. And thanks to Matt Epstein for helping organize all the the wine and liquor, and I was very Jewish about this. I was like, I, you know, wanted to have more, uh, too much rather than not enough. So there's lots of wine. Please help yourself uh, at any point and stick around afterwards. I'm going to read a little bit from the book and then give some context and uh, take whatever questions you have um, and talk about this stuff. And I'm just going to jump right in from a reading. It's on paper because I'm um, going to tell a story. It's actually stitched together um, from several different parts of the book. Um, the book is, the narrative of the book weaves many pairs from the beginning to the end. So you see many pairs meeting and then you see what happens next and you see what happens next all the way through to dissolution or the riding off into the sunset. Um, okay, I'm going to jump in. Once we really look at how creative work is made, we have to reconsider case by case everything we think we know about the great works of civilization. Consider the work attributed to Vincent van Gogh. Though his brother Theo never picked up a brush, it's fair to identify him, as Vincent did, as the co-creator of the drawings and paintings that are among the most significant in history. The Van Gogh brothers were like aspen trees, entwined at the roots. They had distinct roles, styles, and identities, but from their separate domains, each contributed to a joint project of honest, daring art. Now I feel, Vincent once wrote his brother, that my pictures are not yet good enough to compensate for the advantages I've enjoyed through you. But believe me, if one day they should be good enough, you will have been as much their creator as I, because the two of us are making them together. Vincent van Gogh was a florid, irascible, zealous man who started making art in his late 20s after what seemed an endless series of shocks and crises and breakdowns. He did, at the start, try to play the part set out for him. The oldest surviving child of a Parsons family in the Netherlands, he went to work as a teenager for his uncle Vincent's firm, a leading network of art galleries thriving on a market for prints and reproductions. Within just a few years, though, Vincent began to curl at the edges. He was not a salesman. He was dogmatic, not pliant, erratic, not steady, honest, not unctuous. He swallowed books like mugs of coffee and developed an inner encyclopedia of artists he admired. He loved to hold forth. Imagine a hipster clerk in a suburban bookstore scowling at a customer's stack of popular books and chart-topping CDs and enlightening him on the work he really ought to buy, and you have a good sense of just how poorly Vincent fit at Goupil and Company, which, it, which made good money selling images of established works to the middle brow. At 23, Vincent was fired. 
The proximate cause, his leaving for holiday without permission, was a pretext. When the apple is ripe, he wrote Theo, a soft breeze will make it fall from the tree, and such was the case here. Vincent's parents once hoped that he would, quote, take the crown of the family and fulfill their exalted expectations. But in the years after Vincent left his uncle's firm, he wandered from the castle onto the barren heath. He worked for spells as a schoolteacher and as a bookseller. He became consumed with religious visions, but could not stomach even the first of seven years of formal study required to join the Protestant clergy. He couldn't even hold the job for which his fiery enthusiasm seemed to suit him as an evangelist in Belgian coal country. It was there that Vincent's madness began to seem less like an occasional lapse and more like an enduring condition. What he saw as piety, ardor, and devotion to Christ, refusing to wash, wearing rags, sleeping on floors, even when beds were offered him, others found bizarre and frightening. His father wanted to commit him to an insane asylum. Finally, around 1880, at 27 years old, Vincent made a fateful choice. He would be an artist. He began to work his way into that life, but he did not do this alone. Through it all, Vincent would be propped up and influenced and often led by his brother Theo. Four years younger, Theo van Gogh shared Vincent's sensitive nature, but not his sturdy constitution nor his imperious style. Theo was quieter, more sickly, and where Vincent was oversized in personality and disastrous, like a barge headed onto rocks, Theo was swift and steady, like a skiff moving across a lake. Like his brother, Theo went to work at Goupil and Company when he was still a teenager. Unlike his brother, he did quite well. Soon, he transferred to Paris, a rising employee at a leading gallery and the world capital of art. He began to regularly, regularly support his brother. Soon, he was his brother's sole support. But this word, support, is important to unpack. In many accounts, it is given as a summation of Theo's role, suggesting perhaps a banker in Boise well-off and kind of boring, sending money to his poet brother, the romantic in Greenwich Village. But for Vincent and Theo, the reality was more like a poet in Boise whose brother edited books at Random House in New York City. It took five years before Vincent produced what is now recognized as his first mature piece, The Potato Eaters, in the spring of 1885. His iconic paintings came years after that. As he developed and struggled in total obscurity, Theo was the arbiter of the work's quality, the one saying, essentially, not yet, but keep trying. He gave his brother something far more valuable than money, encouragement without condensation. Excuse me. That would be interesting. Encouragement. <laughs> We're all, it would be like an experiment in physics. Uh, encouragement without condescension, taste without haughtiness. The artist and the dealer is a classic expression of relational archetypes. In broad terms, the artist is the expressive engine, plumbing her soul for potent, authentic material, often doing the physical labor of making work and attaching her identity to the piece, signing it and declaring, this is a piece of me. The art dealer, again, in broad terms, is charged with finding a context and a market for the artist's work, interfacing with clients, promoting and publicizing, often underwriting the infrastructure necessary for a sale, or even supporting the artist directly in return for an ownership stake or commission, which these days typically means a 50-50 split. But as critical as are these distinct roles, a mere recitation of them can feel cold and mechanical, as though the artist is the red-hot center and the art dealer a functionary. The heat has always to be shared, as it was between Vincent and Theo. Sons of a parson, they adapted to a secular world, but never shed a deep piety and an unapologetic earnestness. The more people one meets, Theo wrote, the more one sees that they hide behind conventional forms of conversation and that what they say when they pretend to be honest is often so empty and so false. 
In his brother, Theo saw an inspiring and maddening prophet of authenticity. For Vincent's part, it's important to remember that he never merely wanted to paint. He came late to art, not because he was a late bloomer, but because his real passion was to be an agent of salvation. And though he left the clergy behind, he never stopped preaching. His was a search, as the scholar Deborah Silverman puts it, for sacred art. If their relationship led them to art, both brothers also saw art as a vehicle for relationships. Vincent told his brother once that in a pinch he would far rather give up painting than see you killing yourself to make money. Let's be together whatever happens. He hoped to make lasting work and for he and Theo to build an important collection. Most of all, Vincent dreamed of a movement of painters supporting one another aesthetically and spiritually, living and working alongside one another. This was his true utopian dream. The paradox is that to fulfill the common objective, their work led them further apart. Vincent once mused that in a time of revolution, we, quote, quote, could with a certain sadness have found ourselves directly opposed to each other as enemies on a barricade. You in front of it as a soldier of the government, I behind it as a revolutionary or rebel. Yet these were not so much oppositions as positions in a dialectic. Vincent as Mr. Outside, disheveled, unrespectable, throwing barbs at the establishment even as he sought its approval. Theo as Mr. Inside, clean, put together, in an office, dealing with daily compromises and indignities, all the while yearning for something great and new. Theo, too, understood implicitly the role of relational opposition, driven by what he called the faith that we are stronger together than alone. Vincent and Theo did sometimes lose patience with each other. They made each other furious. But they also spurred and served each other. Inspired by Vincent, Theo became a leading champion of the avant-garde, among the first dealers to sell Camille Pissarro, Claude Monet, Paul Gauguin. This strengthened his authority as an advisor to Vincent, whose early works were dark and dreary. Theo urged him to pay attention to Impressionism, a movement Vincent knew nothing about, until he came finally to join his brother in Paris in February 1886. As they walked the avenues, George Howe Colt writes, the brothers made an unusual pair, Theo striding forward in his pressed suit, polished boots, and carefully trimmed brown beard. Vincent bobbing alongside, gesticulating wildly as he pressed a point, wearing worn boots, patched trousers, a mangy rabbit's fur cap, a scraggly red beard, and a paint-smattered blue smock. Now Vincent was in the swirl of influences of painters in his brother's world. Now Theo, was blown along by the windstorm of his brother's energy. It was a hectic, heady time for both men. Vincent wrote that in his color studies, he was, quote, seeking oppositions of blue with orange, red and green, yellow and violet, seeking to harmonize brutal extremes, trying to render intense color and not a gray harmony. He could just as easily have been talking about the oppositions of the two brothers, which made for a fiery hole. In the two years they lived and fought together in Paris, an odd couple on an odd mission, Vincent made most of his self-portraits. He made his first sunflowers. This is where Van Gogh really became Van Gogh. Thank you. I'm just going to have a little wine. <laughs> and please help yourself if you like a bottle. So I'm just going to give a little bit of um, background and context um, on this book, Powers of Two. Um, I, um, I began with a question. I, I, all my work begins with some kind of question that is, I think of as very naive in the sense that it's kind of the kind of question you just you know, you don't, you can never answer. And so 
you know, I think most smart people just stop asking these questions. Like Lincoln's melancholy was about the coexistence of just profound suffering and enormous achievement, which is so common that we start to take it for granted, and it's totally inexplicable. But I, you know, tried to wrestle it to the ground. And with this book, the question was: this thing we call chemistry or electricity, this feeling of being buoyed up by someone, feeling sharper, smarter, funnier, or in my case, feeling funny at all in another person's presence, um, <laughs> is what is that? What is happening when that's happening? And I thought one way to get to that would be to look at many cases of eminent partners like Lennon and McCartney and Watson and Crick. And I started making a list and I thought, you know, maybe if I, if I look really closely at this thing between those people, I could, I could get at this. And very quickly, within a couple of days, the list began to have names with question marks at the end. Because I, I knew a little bit about Theo Van Gogh. I'd seen him alluded to as his brother Vincent's supporter. Um, and I wonder what was, you know, what, was, what was at the heart of that relationship. I remembered that Martin Luther King in his last speech referred to Ralph Abernathy as my best friend in the whole world. And so I thought, what, what was the deal with that relationship? And over and over again, I began to see that in places where I had seen a lone genius like Van Gogh, who is the absolute emblem of, of, of the myth, um, or Martin Luther King, or Picasso, or Freud, that there are critical relationships operating behind the scenes. And I also began to see that in many cases, two people with independent reputations, places where we know both, uh, Theo Van Gogh is not known, Ralph Abernathy is not known to the, you know, compared to their partner, but, but we know Patti Smith and we know Robert Maplethorpe until her memoir, we knew very little of their relationship and the way they co-created each other as artists. The same with uh, J.R.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis. Um, so I began to see that this was now not an incidental question about some strange thing that happens, but really the engine underneath the creative process for all time, and that the whole mode that we have of thinking about creativity as being contained in an individual is a relatively modern construct. It's several hundred years old, and we totally take it for granted, and it's totally reified by biography, by magazine covers, by, and even by this moment here, by an author in exchange with an audience, because I have a hidden partner, my, the editor of my book, um, my principal uh, partner. There, there are many other people who played a critical role. Um, and so the project really became, it, it sprawled, and it was now about trying to understand the way that relationships are underneath creativity in, 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 a, in a very big picture. And I looked at these three different categories, the known partners, the hidden partners, and the, and the partners who are distinct, the two people who are both known, but, but not for how they affected each other and, and created each other, and tried to find the commonalities. And that's, that's what the, the book is. It's uh, trying to find the core themes um, and um, in these stories and to try to tell the stories beginning literally with how did these people meet? Where did Tolkien and Lewis first encounter one another? How did, when did John Lennon become aware of Paul McCartney for the first time and vice versa? And what does that teach us about this thing we call chemistry and, and the kinds of people to whom it may happen? Um, and moving through, so, and I'll just very briefly say that it moves through to the question of how two individuals become um, they, they, they may meet each other and be excited by each other and may even have a kind of creative love at first sight, but they're still distinct individuals. At a certain point, the individual ego begins to break down and a we emerges, a joint identity emerges, and it's always very complicated and issues of credit and um, ownership over work uh, come into play. The next question is how once they're a joint unit, they find their distinctions, they find their roles, which is very important because that's often why we don't know about people to begin with. We don't know about the art dealer. We don't know the most fabulous and ridiculous example I encountered is about the role of the caddy 
in professional golf, which I thought when someone said that to me, I was telling him about hidden partners, and he said, do you know about the caddy? And I thought he was joking with me. I, all I knew about caddies came from Caddyshack. And he said, no, actually the caddy is out there all day with the golfer, and he is the strategist and the counselor and the psychologist and the story of, of Steve Williams, who was Tiger Woods' caddy all through his, his great years is, is emblematic. Um, so roles, and that takes us into the kind of, we're used to thinking about personality types, but really um, what this, this conversation takes us into um, relational types, and, and those relational types that show up over and over again deepen into what we can think of as relational archetypes. Um, the next uh, stage, now these pairs have met, excited each other, joined, found their roles, and quite to my surprise, the next critical thing is how they negotiate an appropriate amount of distance one, from one another. Um, I, I, I never expected to see that, but I saw it over and over again, and, and some pairs are like Siamese twins, creatively, metaphorically speaking. They're always together. Um, like Andrew Andrew, this performance artist pair, who are literally never in public without one another. And other places you see creative engagement across an enormous expanse of solitude. Um, that was often the case with John Lennon and Paul McCartney, who did a lot of their work in solitude before they brought it to one another. And we think simplistically, oh, that means they were working apart. They weren't working apart. They were working together and working alone. And that dialectic is so critical. And any of us who are writers, I think a good portion of this room are writers, knows that experience of moving from solitude to connection, which is something that can happen unusually uh, um, fluidly in a pair. And one reason why the, a pair is such a special unit. Um, and even Emily Dickinson, uh, I, I present in the book as someone who was driven by relational exchange, albeit from an enormous place of, of withdrawal and solitude. Um, the next major th stage, that these pairs are always, there's always some kind of tension at the heart of them, and, the, and that tension is always there. And in the and we're now sort of at the place of their most mature work. We're into you know Sgt. Pepper's moving into the White Album with Lennon McCartney. We're into this material with Vincent Van Gogh when he's beginning to create his great work. And the tension really flowers often into outright conflict um, and enmity and profound difficulty. Which again, you know, in a simplistic way, you think. Uh, that is the opposite of working with someone when you hate someone or when you want to beat someone or when someone drives you mad when in fact that the opposition and and the cooperation in fact are another dialectic I've used that word twice it's a it's a fancy word for when two opposite things create something bigger than either one and that and and it's um, um, it's, a, it's a fancy word, but it's the perfect word for this phenomenon. And then finally, at the end, the question is, what happens? Who splits up and why? And who stays together and why? And that turns out to be enormously complex. There are certain simple observations. It turns out that pairs who do well in the long term often do well because they are a pair in a healthy context. And so this is the moment when you draw the camera out and you look at the world around them. Um, and you say, well, why did Lennon and McCartney split? It was not because the dynamic between them changed. It's because the dynamics around them changed. And it was no longer able to contain what had always been this sort of very fiery exchange between them. Um, and then finally, you know, and this is the, the, the sort of final note of the book, is um, that even looking at that, looking at that as a split is, is incorrect. That once people become bound up with one another in the way that all the pairs in this book do, there is actually no final separation. They may, they may cease to work together, but they have become entwined with each other psychologically. And that is both, I think, 
enormously inspiring, and there's a note of tragedy in the sense of something so much bigger than us when we allow this to happen, and it's both, I think, exciting because the original title of the book was How to Explode. It was like, how do we get beyond the self? But of course, there's a kind of, um, a kind of violence in that, um, uh, a kind of a taking part of this, this sense of ourselves, and we know what, where the limitations are. The, we know where the edges are. The edges are around our body, which is comforting. And uh, I think one reason for this lone genius myth, we, we, we like the idea of things being contained in such a way. But um, my experience over five years immersed with these pairs is that it is a fiction and that we need to embrace another model. Um, and, that the, and that the pair, the relationship pair, is... A real example, it actually is a, it's staggeringly ha staggering how often that is how creativity is made with the pair as a primary unit, but it's also a model with which we can consider the experience of dialogue and exchange, whether it's between two people or two groups of people, or even in a, um, a long digression in the book that I won't get into, even within, the, within, within our, our minds. Um, when we are creating, we are engaged in a, a fruitful conversation in our, in our heads. Um, with that, thank you so much for coming and listening so patiently. And yeah, if you have questions, I'd be glad to take them. Did anything surprise you about the relationship? I had no idea, or you just like, oh. You know, the most basic surprise is one that's ongoing, and that's the surprise of the of the lone genius suddenly emerging as a figure in a in a context that I had no awareness of, and it's happening. You know, it happened throughout the book. You know, Steve Jobs and Warren Buffett and and Martin Luther King Jr. and um, Picasso and Freud. Um, and it's continuing to happen because people are now telling me. I mean, I, uh, uh, stories of, of you, you. Most of these stories are not well known, and they're often not even well known to scholars of the of of the people involved. Because a lot of what happens in these relationships is private. It's often um, not recorded. If you think about the most intimate things in your life, they're often the things that don't get written down. And a lot of times, we only know about it. You know, years later when there's some kind of conflict. Brock and Picasso is a classic example. The only thing Brock, I mean, they created cubism together. That's extremely clear. It's not controversial. But we know nothing of what happened. And the only thing that Brock said was essentially that what happened between us, no one will ever know. Is lit literally the only time he ever spoke about the relationship. And Einstein had a guy who he was in relentless conversation with when he published his first paper on relativity. And zero is known about this guy, um, and and so and people. So it takes a very deep dive to even get the the basics of these relationship and people who've done these dives on other people, like William Faulkner. Someone was a scholar. Faulkner was telling me how Faulkner's whole career was organized in a kind of competitive relationship to his brothers, um, and that that is the surprise. It just goes on and on and on. And the people are like, you know, playing clever with me. Well, what about Beethoven? You know, and I. I was asked that question on National Public Radio, and I, I didn't know. And I had to stop the tape, and I had to do it again. And then someone, my editor, my, my editor's assistant, who's also an editor himself, is editing a book about Beethoven. And he said, well, let me tell you. <laughs> um, so that's the, that's the surprise. Yes? Um, so did Theo, was Theo humoring his brother, or did he understand what his brother was up to? I, mean, I think some of both. He thought, he said that his brother uh, might one day be great. He, he thought he had potential. And he, 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 he believed in him, and he had faith in him, but he withheld his approval for many years. He was not condescending. And it was maddening to Vincent. It drove him crazy that he that he and he and he was this furious fellow. Why aren't you doing more? Why aren't you selling my work? And Theo is more or less selling him, as I said. You know, um, not yet, but keep trying. And there is a moment when when it shifted, and when he 
when we, when the world recognizes that the work is great, the, Theo was recognizing at that moment that the work was great. When was that um, it was around this time, in the, around the time that I talked about in, in Paris, and then especially, and this is another place where the distance theme really, and this is what follows the Van Gogh story that I, you know, that continues from where, where I stopped. They had this very intense, intimate period where they were, they were fighting and, uh, and, and, and Vincent's work was changing dramatically and then he, he very suddenly left and went to the south of France and, and he wrote his brother a letter. He, he, in, in the letter he says, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of you constantly. He, it, it is an illustration of the way that sometimes people need, in order to be in relationship, need to be apart. And um, for the next two or three years the work was was just explosively good, and m most of what we know of Van Gogh is sort of from Paris, the Paris period afterwards, for about five years into a, until a suicide, and shortly after his suicide, his brother went quite mad and was was dead himself six months later. They literally could not live without each other. Yes, sir. Yes, absolutely. Find, yeah, finding the distinctions and finding um, often, you know, sometimes in like very obvious like chocolate and peanut butter ways, you know, Steve Wozniak's an engineer and Steve Jobs is, you know, uh, a great marketer, you know, one of them only cares about making things beautiful and elegant and the other one just wants to sell, you know, wants to sell widgets and wants to change the world in that way. But often, you know, to use another cliche, it's the... Uh, it's the grain of sand and the oyster, and the and the and the oppositions that are less they aren't necessarily uh, around expertise or background, but a kind of temperamental opposition. Yeah, and, th and that's there from the beginning. That's the sort of that's at the heart of what chemistry is: is having a profound alignment with someone, a rapport, feeling comfortable. Uh, feeling at ease, you know, feeling like you're sort of with your people, but then, and, but also feeling challenged, and 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 losing your balance. And the first allows us, you know, um, to you know to to grow and breathe, and the second one, it, you know, pushes us to move. Yes, Elizabeth. Um, so early on in your research, did you have any celebrated people that you? Thinking that you wanted to focus on, were really excited about finding at least one counterpart, big influence, and you just couldn't. I mean, you have the Einstein example, uh, but like somewhere where you're like, maybe this person doesn't really—they didn't have the power to. They didn't have anything that was like a single person or a single relationship, either a collaboration or a competition, that really was the generator of a lot of their creativity. I honestly did not. I mean, a lot of the project of the book is to, um, you know, I'm looking at heat and energy. I'm not necessarily necessarily looking at any form. It's not necessarily collaboration. It's not necessarily two people, you know, working on a common body of work. It's it's some instigatory quality, and I do think it it is it's everywhere and and. Um, the that doesn't necessarily mean that they last a long time. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's only. It's not like a, you know, there's one creative soulmate for you, and you know, and and and, you know, I talk in my in the book quite a lot about my relationship with my editor. He's not the only person who I was in relationship with as I made the book. I, I have an agent. I had a research assistant. Um, um, who was much more than a research assistant, um, and um, so no, I, I really, I really didn't. There, there, and there, there is in fact only one example that I thought of repeatedly and did not know um, what the deal was, um, and that's Henry Darger. Uh, you know, who was famously isolated, but I've heard intimations um, from a recent biography that there was a fellow at the post office who was critical to him. And there are many cases where, <laughs> there, there are many cases where there's something there and I smell it. I could just smell it, 
but I couldn't get it to it like Einstein. And I only, then there are other places like Emily Dickinson where I say something to a lot of people seem kind of radical, but it's entire, this is, it's the, absolutely the consensus within Dickinson's studies. And so I then, as an outsider, could come in and, and report that to the world. Whereas with Einstein, this guy, Michel Besso, I, it, he's totally disregarded. One Einstein scholar said to me, um, uh, of Einstein, he might as well have been talking to a tree. Which, you know, from the way I see the world is really, I mean, that's a, a, a great summation of the problem. He wasn't talking to a tree. This was one of his best friends. He had arranged for him to have a job at the patent office. He took walks with him every day. He said that in these walks, it was as though human contingencies no longer existed. They were an entirely in a dream world of their own. I can't tell that story. But it just, it, 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 it shouts out that there was some energy there that was activating. And it doesn't mean that Einstein was not what we would think of as a genius and Besso was not what he would, we would think of as a sounding board. It's not that they were equals or that we should, you know, co-credit you know, co the work. But, but that energy was there. Yes, sir. Say again. <laughs> Dialectic. <laughs> I like it. A lot of times people can't see it, and that's okay. You know, insight is overrated. Um, and I actually ran into a guy yesterday. Who was I told him about my book, and he's been a songwriter for many years with uh, this big band I had not heard of, but apparently they're very big, called The Rise Against. And he and I. I I was actually going to meet with someone, with a curator who wants me to find a pair to interview on stage, which is really hard to do. People are really reluctant to get into this stuff. And I, I said, oh, well, if you guys are ever interested, and he said, no, we would never do that. We don't talk about it. Like, we are on a knife's edge, and we stay there in part because we, you know, we, 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 let, we leave a lot of things unsaid. And that's the other reason why, you know, relationships are hard to get at. If you think about the relationships that are, you know, that's another reason why this stuff has, is not often talked about. It's, if, it's often very challenging to get to the heart of it. <laughs> yes, Erica. Besides the, uh, the caddies for God, what was the most surprising debunking account of a solitary genius both in terms of like, not, being, you know, not having your own collaborator and the level of influence of that collaborator? I think I've mentioned the big one so far. Van Gogh, Dickinson continues to blow my mind. And as someone who needs an enormous amount of solitude, and for someone, as someone for whom, you know, my piece in the story, especially right now, having wrapped up this, you know, this book that, that is like a child, and it, 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 was, it was the product of a kind of marriage. I mean, I was bound, well before we were bound legally to one another through a contract, I was certainly bound emotionally to Eamon vis-a-vis this material. I thought of him within moments of having the idea. He, in fact, several months before I had the idea, is the one who had told me, you know, in order to find your next book, you need to think of questions, which was something that I always knew and had always told students, but I had forgotten. Um, and I immediately thought of him when I had the idea and brought it to him quickly and developed the proposal in relationship with him and the book, too, and all of the the glory and all of the madness, the uh, enormous tension and conflict and, and you know, ugliness uh, that, that happens in these relationships I lived. And now, having finished this, I'm now asking, so what's next and who am I? And yes, connection is everything, I think, but connection uh, is only possible with authenticity from the individuals and then, of course, you know, and I, I feel a great need now to water those roots in my own life, and so, and I and I'm I'm thinking about the courage, actually, that to, of moving away from what we think of as um, see the heat that we that we're talking about is not necessarily actual contact. Emily Dickinson was constantly refusing the kind of contact that people insisted was necessary, which was, you know, all these bullshit social niceties. And then we look at that and we say, oh, she was disinterested in people. And that's what a lot of her contemporaries thought. She was not disinterested in people. She was interested in the real stuff that was under the ground and that she could only get to through reflection and thinking and working out with language. And she would write these letters. 
And she did not leave her home, but she wrote thousands of letters and she sent her poems to hundreds of people, meaning she wrote a poem and she would send it to a particular reader to the point that the scholars argue that it's wrong to say that Emily Dickinson did not publish. She did not print, but if you think of as publishing as finding a reader for your work, she was publishing her work. Um, and that paradox is really high in my mind now that sometimes, you know, what connection requires is, is, is the courage to, you know, to, to dig into your own self and, um, and, and sometimes it's the, it's the courage to deny your own self and this is the reason why I am not Malcolm Gladwell and I will never sell a gazillion books because it really is paradoxical at its heart and to engage with this material one needs to dwell in these paradoxes and breathe with them and you know and 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 feel them and it's and it's really different for everybody there is no formula um there's so many distinctions and variations i mean it as many as there are uh relationships in in, in the world danny yes um, were any of your couples married and if so did that Lots are married, lots are having sex, lots are siblings, lots are, I mean, all different kind of like uh, arrangements, you know, according to, you know, family trees and, you know, kind of conventional descriptions of the relationship. Uh, some are outright enemies, uh, opponents. You know, there's a big section on adversarial collaboration. So, and yes, of course, that there are important distinctions that I, you know, often notice, but I was more looking at convergences. Danielle? Before you wrote this book, were you part of the I mean, you know, one of the things that people experience reading the book is, a, is like a, a revelation of these partnerships operating um, or the kind of heat, the kind of connection operating in places they hadn't been aware of it. And I certainly you know, can look back in my life and see all the meaningful things that have happened to me as, you know, as generating from that kind of energy. Um, but I wasn't, I didn't think about it very much. And in fact, you know, I was, I was and am quite boneheaded about relationships. And um, that's one of the things that I'm writing against my ignorance in this book and trying to educate myself about something I'm really have not historically been very good at and and it was helpful because you know I often have been someone who experiences some kind of tension or difficulty and wants to withdraw or kind of you know ca catastrophize that you know m that minute experience into something global and what I continue to think with Eamon over and over again trying to apply these lessons humility, humility, humility. I have to stay in this. I have to keep coming back to this. He is driving me crazy. That is not a sign that we're not uh, doing the work or that we're not suited to each other. That's actually, if you just look at the body of evidence, that is often a sign that you're you're doing the work when you get to the point where, you know... Um, Eamon Dolan. Eamon Dolan, yeah. He was the editor of the book. So, Chris. Uh, one of the things I just love and admire about the book is how personal it is. Um, you know, Gladwell and Brooks and other people who are taking on sort of big conceptual analytical ideas are often very chin-strokey and right. <laughs> and you're not. You're right there. I'm more of like a brow. I'm like more of a brow wiper. Yeah. More, yeah. Um, can you talk a little bit about the, the decision to include yourself so intimately? Yes, well that that's a great segue from the last question about and discussion of Eamon because that is the tension underneath this book. He's holding me to this form. He believes in what it can do. He genuinely believes in the in, in the power of these kinds of books to affect conversation and change the way people think. He also, you know, he's he's the one with an office job. He sees the spreadsheets. Like he knows the numbers. He write this at this instant. He knows exactly how this book is performing and I have no idea because I, I haven't asked. And I am much more you know, incline, I'm much more loose and associative and um, I, I have some commercial instincts and I, many of my instincts are, you know, exact. I remember I was going over with a friend, uh, you know, a list of pairs that I wanted to 
like profile in a major way, and I was like, blah 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 blah, marks and angles. He's like, no, not marks and angles. And I, I said, why not? I mean, it just seems so fascinating to me. And this guy who's a big, successful book author. Just he's like, are you insane? Like, uh, in a in a commercial book, um, I maybe we're in an audience of people who are. Who are not so commercial writer, so you don't get how that's so insane. But anyway, I I had this instinct all throughout to, you know, come back to intuition and to my feelings, and and Eamon is the one who would say find evidence for that. You know, I was drawn to stories which felt to me to speak like this Einstein Besso moment that just felt to me so alive, and he was the one who would say, you know. Um, it, it, that's not enough. We need more, and it and 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 pressing me and, and holding me to the constraints of this form, and it and it is a, a tension, and it is very uncomfortable for me to be compared to you know writers in this sort of popular science genre because I I have I have so many objections to them, uh, although I also appreciate a lot of the fine points of, of those books. It's not how I see myself, but that's, to the extent that this book is successful, it's a marriage of, of those co competing instincts. And, you know, often, um, to the extent that I would despair as I was writing it, I thought, well, this just, it's an unholy mess. Because I'm pushing, you know, here and he's pushing there. And it's a very odd book for that reason, I, you know. And, and fortunately, uh, I have friends who are going to buy it tonight. So I, not entirely without readers, but it's it's a very unusual book, um, and I, I was often tempted. I was fascinated by the, my relationship with Eamon and and the other sort of personal revelations, but especially about Eamon. And I was often tempted to stop and make this a book, like Charlie Kaufman, an adaptation to write the book about creative relationships about the book about creative relationships. And then my inability to write the book about creative relationships because my creative relationship was failing. Uh, at one point, I, I, was, I had a, call, a long call with my agent. I was like, I've got to do that. I'm going to do that. I'm going to send it to him. I'm going to rewrite it. I'm writing me and Eamon into the story. Um, but I knew Eamon wouldn't go for it. I knew he wouldn't, and he wouldn't. He actually, we, we, we talked about this at an event we did in the book launch, and he was like, yeah, no. Um, so, but I, I got it in the epilogue. One last question. Does anybody have a burning desire? I thought you were going to talk more about sort of how you manage the division of labor in creative tasks. Right. And for that, I would pose uh, the collaboration, let's say, of a screenwriter and a composer. Right. For example, like Hitchcock and Bernard Herrmann. Yes. And I would say one of the things that's preoccupied me is that for a cinema to make progress, they have to be incorporated into one single personality, this composing screenwriter, let's say. And then I've taken that upon myself, but at the same time it's become, well, that's too much for one person to do. So how do I get help being the seed from which these various creative yes. products flow, you know? Yes. So do you have anything to do? Well, there's a whole section of the book on roles, which is you know fascinating, and it, it does start with a you know, very simple thing that we need different people to do different things, and we get good at, at things through repetition and and, and 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 specialty, and there's only so much we can do in in, in one life, and uh, we often need to come into concert with with people who are in other specialties. It gets deeper than that because. You know, we think, oh, well, um, I'm a writer, and he's an editor, and so it's necessary for us to work together. But in fact, or you think, you know, one brother is a maverick, and the other brother is, a, you know, is more conservative, and they really get along together. In fact, when you look at the psychology of human development, what is actually more true is that the maverick becomes the maverick because he is in relation to the more establishment person and vice versa. And so who we are is actually relational, like down to the root of our personality, which is the reason, you know, the story of uh, someone dying and there being a radical change or um, 
with Theo Van Gogh is a, a, a great illustration that when his brother died, Theo had always been the steady one and the one who had it together. And then he never quit his job, even though he wanted to. And he would tell his, he, ha, he actually he took on this very, I said he wasn't condescending, he wasn't, but he, he had a, a vuncular tone towards his brother. It's, it's too bad that you're suffering in this way. I wish you would suffer less. And why don't you take better care of yourself? And this is, you know, and that kind of tone over and over again. And when Vincent died, um, Theo was heartbroken and he, um, he, inst he immediately quit his job. He went and he rented a larger apartment which he could not afford. He went, he started hanging his brother's work all over that apartment and to, hold, to have a gallery show, he went to all of his friends and he said, we need everyone to come right now. And he had, you know, it's um, not my favorite way of thinking of it, but he had a, a, a psychiatrist would certainly say he became manic and the steady, sane uh, uh, younger brother went quite insane over the course of months. And you could say, well, he had syphilis, he may have had syphilis, there are other things happening, and of course, uh, um, there, there, there are sure, surely were other things happening, there may be things that we don't know, um, but it happened instantly on his brother's death, and that is not an uncommon thing. So, so this, you can start, you know, there, 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 you can start looking at this kind of like two Lego blocks, and that is a, a very important way that this begins. And when you look at, at how to start, you know, well, what are you good at? And what do you need help with? And if you get help with the thing you're not good at, you can be spend more time with what you're really good at. And that is, you know, all the sort of 101 lessons that come out of this are very important to me, and I'm trying to practice in my own life. Um, but what happens when you get deeper is that it becomes not about two separate Lego blocks um, that are kind of they can click into one another and then click out, but more. Now I'm just thinking about children's toys, more like um, Play-Doh. And yes, you have two different colors, and they start connecting, and but then they come mound together, and the yellow takes on the brown, and the and it, and it's somehow as as Van Gogh I think was trying to articulate that he wanted to he wanted to. He wanted these harsh extremes brought together, but not a gray harmony. He, wa he wanted to emphasize the extremes by their relation to one another. Right. Thank you again so much. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Young Jesus. You can check them out at youngjesus.bandcamp.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.